view uh, here in person. Thankful for all of you joining us online today. Thankful for this season of Advent that we get a uh, many of us are visual learners, so just to see candles lit and what they mean for stands for something. And for hundreds of years, there have been churches around the world who've honored this season. And I think it's important for us to have some reminders to let us know December is not just about Christmas trees and lights and presents and Santa. All those can be really important things. It's about the impact of Jesus coming into this world 2,000 years ago and what it still means for us today. Now, uh, Christmas this year is on a Sunday, which because of leap year, uh, you know, sometimes this doesn't happen all the time. We've had a Christmas on a Sunday in 2011 and 2016 and in 2022. So in the last 11 years, we've had three Sundays where we've had a Christmas on a Sunday. This will not happen again until the year 2033, 11 more years until we get Christmas on a Sunday. This is not a guilt trip to try to get you here on Sunday and two weeks on the 25th, but I do want you to know we're here. We will be here at 10:15 Christmas morning. For those of you who want to wake up, hang out with your family a little bit, open presents, but you enjoy having a Christmas experience on that day, we will be here and we are ready to worship with you. Put your pajamas on. Come, come show up and let's, uh, let's worship Jesus together. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're in a series right now walking through John 1, which doesn't so much talk about the birth of Christ like in the book of Matthew or the book of Luke where you have angels and shepherds and baby Jesus and Bethlehem. And John, it's more poetic, but it is talking about Jesus entering into this world. Uh, so a few years ago, before I moved to Memphis, I went into a place to get uh, my second tattoo. All right, I just have three Casey asked me to stop at three because we like to do biblical things by biblical numbers. So you got three, seven, twelve, forty. So she asked me to stop at three. Now, I'm a part of a generation that permanent ink is not just about rebellion or defiance. It's a, it's a form of storytelling. And I bought into that, especially back in my 20s. So I went in and I had a dear friend, a close friend of Casey and ours. Her name is Sarah. She went in with me because she was thinking about getting a tattoo. So as this guy is working on my arm, Sarah's just a few feet away. She wanted to know, does it hurt? And, um, but something happened. I didn't see it, but there was a little squirt of blood. She went pale. She was out like a light, so she's out. Now it was just Harry and myself. Harry was 6'3", 275, wore a tank top, tattoos from head to toe. Had a deep, raspy voice. And we started just talking shop, like trying to get to know each other a little bit. If you're going to be hanging out for an hour with somebody, you want to have a little bit of small talk. And Harry started talking about he's had a license to tattoo people in four states, but only in the state of Texas. Has somebody come in asking for the outline of the state placed on their body or the Texas state flag placed on their body? This doesn't happen for people who were born and raised in Delaware or South Dakota or Rhode Island. Like, you don't get these requests. And then we started talking about his life, and then I started asking questions about his life, and then Harry started sharing with me. He had a wife who was terminally ill. She was going to die within just the next few weeks, and Harry started to cry. I'm talking tears flowing from it, like shoulders bouncing a little bit. But Harry kept trying to work on my arm. Now, here's the thing, all right? If somebody's doing some permanent ink on you and they can't see straight, you would much rather them take a break. Let's pass through this moment. Let me pray with you a little bit. Let's talk about this. I know when I came in, I said I had an hour, but come to think of it, I have all day, all right? I have nowhere else to be, all right? So we, we started talking. Here's, here's what got our conversation on faith. It's on my left arm, I have 114. Three digits, 114. And when I first walked in and Harry saw it, Harry was asking, you know, what zip code does this stand for? And were you a part of a gang, 114? And, and then I started sharing with him, it's John 114. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. 
which has been one of the most impactful verses in my life for over a decade. That this lets us know that God didn't just come on a one-time visit to drop a little bit of grace and mercy and a sacrifice. Jesus didn't just come one day, die on the next day, rise from the dead three days later, and then ascend into the heaven. Uh, after that, he came and invested three decades of his life walking the ground of this earth, walking among people. That Jesus didn't come in and drop a visit. He came in to live among his people, to dwell. And it gave me a chance to witness to Harry in that place, to let him know that even with a wife, who is going to die soon, you need to know the good news of a God who came near, of a God who is stepping into your life. So look in your Bibles in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Here's what it says. He was in the world, Jesus, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And you can see I highlighted a couple of words in these two verses. The word world shows up three times in verse 10. And this is a word that John loved. John uses this more than anybody else. In the New Testament, the word world shows up 183 times. John uses it 57 of those 183. The word own is a word that John uses more than anybody else. It shows up 23 times just in the book of John alone. So John, there are times where he uses the world to talk about like hatred for the world or that the world is like in a negative way. And then John 3, 16 is for God so loved the world. And here what John 1, 10 and 11 lets you know is Jesus, he didn't just step into the world, like he helped create it. And the one who created the world stepped into it and the world didn't know him. And then he came to those who were his own, like his very own people, and they did not receive him. So early on in Jesus' life, you're told in John chapter 1, there's going to be rejection. Now I'm not preaching Luke chapter 2, but in Luke chapter 2 where you have a longer account of the birth narrative of Christ, you're told there was a prophet Simeon who met Jesus and Mary and Joseph when Jesus was just a few days old, met him in the temple, and what Simeon spoke over him, it was a word of blessing, it was a word of prophecy, but what Simeon spoke over Jesus is he will be a light to the, not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles. He will be a sign that will be opposed. And this child, will be for the rising and the falling of the people of Israel. Which, if you were Mary, is that a blessing that you once spoken over your child? That this will be a sign that will be opposed, that there's going to be opposition, there's going to be rejection. I wonder for Mary throughout her life, how many times does she pray against the prophecy or want to reject the prophecy or wanting God to protect Jesus, even though the prophecy had been spoken over him? Every parent would want to do this for their kids. Even though we know opposition and rejection is going to find us all at some point in life, we want to do our best to try to protect people from it. And here it's spoken over Jesus. You're going to be a sign that will be opposed. In John chapter 1, the language in 10 and 11, is he came into the world, a world he helped create, but the world didn't know him. He came to those who were his own. And even those who were his own, they rejected him. They didn't receive him. Rejection is not just a part of the life of Jesus. Rejection is a part of the birth narrative of Jesus. Let me talk about rejection just for a few minutes this morning. When I was in ninth grade, uh, our youth group went to Six Flags multiple times every year. We would go in a large group. There are dozens of us. One time we went to Six Flags. This girl came with another girl. I, I kind of liked her, so we spent a little time throughout the day, rode a couple of rides together. Before we left that night, I got her number. This is how you had to do it back in the days. You couldn't program a number into a phone. You either had to carry a pen with you or have a good memory. So I got her number. That night I called her. She picked up the phone. And as we're talking about our day, I decided I was going to use one of Will Smith, 
pickup lines from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I used to use these back in the days. Occasionally they would work, sometimes they wouldn't, all right? So the thing is, Will on the show would sometimes, like he would say, hey, your feet must be tired because you've been running through my mind all day. I like the line. I wanted to use it. So I decided to do it in question form. Like, hey, girl, are your feet tired? We had been at Six Flags all day. Of course they should be tired. I said, are your feet tired? And her response was, no. All right. But I kept with the line. So I said, are you sure your feet are tired? She's like, no, I'm feeling fine. So because my brain wasn't properly developed, I went, I just kept going with it. I kept moving. So I said, well, if your feet were tired, the reason they would be tired is because you've been running through my mind all day. We got off the phone about 90 seconds later, never talked to her again. She wouldn't pick up the phone anytime I tried to call her. All right. Now, for many of us here in this space today, the forms of rejection that we have experienced in our lives are probably way worse than that little moment about me trying to use that pickup line. My brother-in-law, David, my sister who died back in 2010, her husband, he grew up and never went to church growing up. It was like a miracle of God that he just went to Abilene Christian University, knew very little about church, knew very little about ACU, had a woman back home who had told him about this college. He applied. First time he drives into Abilene is like the day before school. So he gets to Abilene. This is back in the 90s. And he decided, hey, let me just give this church thing a try. So he did. He just found a church, walked in one day, and a deacon met him at the back door and said, hey, we're glad you're here. But if you ever choose to wear a hat into this church again, we'd much rather you just stay home or go somewhere else. So he didn't step inside the church for three more years until he met my sister. And my sister talked him into giving church a shot again. Now, when it comes to rejection, all of us have been rejected in some kind of way. Some of you have been rejected by you lost a job that you had held for years or you were passed up for promotion that you thought that you were right for the job. Or you had a spouse who quit on you even though you had everything inside of you, like you wanted to fight for it. Or maybe you've been rejected by church or leaders or, or maybe in your life there have been moments you have felt like you have been rejected by God. So let me talk just a moment about rejection in the brain. Because our bodies, when they experience physical pain, our brain releases these natural pain-killing chemicals called opioids. Our brain produce and release these. So they release them to help lessen the pain and to help us cope. So the University of Michigan Medical School, they decided to do a little experiment because they wanted to know how do our brains respond to social rejection, not just physical trauma. So they brought in participants and what happened is the participants came into a room and they, in front of all of them, there were over a hundred photos and fictitious uh, profiles of potential mates, and they were asked to rank them among the people who they would like to date. So as they ranked all, they looked over a hundred of them, and they knew when they were stepping into this room they were fictitious profiles, but still they ranked them among those they would like to date. And then what happened is the medical school, they had brain scanners that were monitoring brain activity to see how the brain would respond when the people were informed that the people they expressed interest in did not have interest in them. And their brains responded the same way the brains respond with physical trauma. It released this natural pain-killing chemical, opioid. 
So what they discovered is our brains respond to social rejection in the same kind of ways our brains respond to physical trauma. So our brains respond to social rejection in the same way that our brain responds when we slam our hand in a door or hurt our back doing burpees in early morning workouts. The same kind of way. Yeah. When it comes to rejection, there are things about the brain, and I, I was reading the other day about this guy named James Comley. Uh, he's a Canadian. He invented a game around a decade ago called Rejection Therapy. And the reason he invented this game is he wanted to help build tolerance and to help desensitize, to help people throughout life, like to handle when you were told no. So he developed a game where you seek out rejection. Does this sound like fun to anybody in the house? Some of you may be thinking, man, our family's going to play that for Christmas, rejection therapy. It's kind of like the iron fist uh, technique of kung fu, where he or she will pummel something like a hard object over and over again to build your resistance to pain. And here's why this is all important. Because in a Google search engine, which billions of people have access to, and people place things in those Google search engines, over the years, people have ranked some of their greatest fears, and they rank rejection near the very top. People rank rejection as a greater fear than they rank pain, loneliness, or illness. So there's a guy, I first heard about this guy a few years ago, his name is Ja Jang. He came over to the United States when he was 15 years old, and he was ambitious. He came as a foreign exchange student, and his ambition was by the age of 25, he wanted a company in which he had launched by himself as an entrepreneur and made so much money that he could buy out Bill Gates and Microsoft. That was his ambition. And it didn't work. In his early 20s, he had a six-figure job. He was a newlywed. He was a few weeks from having his first child. And at that point, he decided... He's going to quit his job and try to as a, like, just explore as an entrepreneur. There was something he wanted to create. So he hired a few people. He launched this or put together this product. He had investors who were interested. He wanted to sell it to someone else, had people interested in it. And then over a span of a few days, there was rejection after rejection after rejection. So he decided that he was going to go on a journey of 100 days of rejection. Inspired by the game, Rejection Therapy, he was going to have a hundred days in which he just took a risk, knowing that people were most likely going to say no, to help build his tolerance and his character, so that when he faced rejection for the rest of his life, it wasn't going to derail him. So what he did on day one is he just walked up to security guard. And his whole thing is he was going to film every rejection, upload it to a blog, and write about it every day. So day one, he approached the security guard and asked for $100. The security guard said no, like most of us would. That was day one. Day two, he went to Five Guys, and he was in there eating a burger and fries, and he looked up and he saw free refills, and he thought, why at Five Guys aren't there not free refill burgers? They should have free refill burgers. So he went up to a counter and asked for a free refill burger, in which they rejected him in the moment. A few days later, he decided he was going to take a soccer ball and put on cleats and look like a soccer player and find a, a home of a complete stranger, knock on the door, and ask if he could go in their backyard and play soccer by himself for five minutes. So we did it, and the guy said yes. All right, so he went in the backyard. He would go up to a stranger's house and ask to plant flowers, but the one that, the one that went viral is when he walked into a Krispy Kreme. And he said, in that donut shop, like the, the course of my life changed. Now, Krispy Kreme can change the course of a lot of our lives, or maybe better said, it can change the course of our days for the good or the bad. 
So he walked in, it just happened to be there in the summer, summer Olympics. So he walked up to the counter and he asked, can you make me a special donut? And the one behind the counter, Jackie, she said, sure. He said, I want you to make me a donut that looked like the five Olympic rings. And he was expecting a no. And she immediately pulled out a pen and right there on a napkin begins trying to create what an Olympic ring donut could look like. And she went to the back and she made it. So he put that up on his, on his blog and just a few days later read it, picked up on it, and then it made it onto the homepage of Yahoo. And within just a few days, he's flying around the country doing morning shows and talk shows and podcasts. And he and Jackie, who worked at Krispy Kreme, began flying around and they're doing all these interviews together because people were super intrigued by this idea of you trying to face rejection in your life to build your tolerance that when people say no, that it won't derail you. When we're rejected in life, a lot of times we blame. We either blame ourselves or we blame other people. So when we face rejection of any kind, sometimes we blame ourselves. Like, what did I do wrong? Do I not have what it takes? Maybe it's just not in me. Like, what is wrong with me? But there are times we face rejection where we blame other people. Like, I think I was the best person for the job, but they didn't give me a fair chance, or they didn't take me seriously, or I knew they were an evil person going to hell, and now I know they are. Like, there are times in rejection we may blame ourselves, or, or sometimes we blame other people. One last story, and I want, to, I want to get back to Jesus, all right? Kevin Carl Smith is a PhD, has a PhD. He's a social psychologist at Colgate University. And he chose to do a lab experiment where he would bring in participants, and then everybody would be faced with a perceived injustice. All right, so participants would come into this lab. So what happened is a perceived injustice, a scenario was placed in front of them. So uh, I'm talking about like people facing a situation where their wallet was stolen, car was broken into, somebody talked about their mama, like someone cheated on them, like some perceived injustice. And then what they did is they split them up into two groups. You had a group of participants who were given the option to seek revenge as they were faced with the perceived injustice. And then you had a group of participants who were not given the option to seek revenge. And every single person given the option to seek revenge, they took it. And every single person who took it, sought revenge, at the end of the day, they said that they felt worse because they did. What's ironic is, every single person who was not given the option said that if they were, they would have taken it, and they think they would have felt better because of it. Which means this, when we face rejection throughout life in any kind of way, revenge and retaliation is at least on our minds a little bit. Even if it's just in a form of, I'm writing them a, an anonymous letter or something, like it's in your mind just a little bit. So let's come back to Jesus. In John 1, verses 10, we're told he came into a world that he created and the world didn't know him. And in verse 11, you're told, he came among his own, and his own didn't receive him. They didn't accept him. So throughout Jesus' life, he faced rejection by Jews. He faced rejection by Gentiles. Jesus faced rejection by his own family, by his disciples. Maybe even on the cross, and there, there was a moment Jesus felt rejected by God. Of all the rejection Jesus experienced in his life, he didn't seek revenge. Not once. 
He could have hit the eject button. He could have called it quits. He could have called down 10,000 angels. When Jesus was faced with moments of rejection, he did not seek retaliation and revenge. Jesus got on the cross what he did not deserve. And for all of us who are in Christ, we get what we don't deserve. So in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it says almost the same thing in two different ways. He came into a world, created the world, the world didn't know him. He came to those who were his own, and his own didn't receive him. And then you read verses 12 and 13 that says this. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the authority, or in some of your versions, he gave the power, or in some of your versions, that he gave uh, the opportunity to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This word believe is a word that shows up in John more than anywhere else. Of 263 times in the New Testament, John talks about believing in the name of Jesus. Believing 84 times. The word born is a word that shows up 48 times in the New Testament, 14 times in the Gospel of John alone. About being born, or in John chapter 3, being born again. That the promise that we receive because of Jesus' rejection is that we have now been given the authority to be called children of God, a brand new name, and the opportunity to be born again into Christ. And today you could go to a lunch, you could go to a restaurant, you could walk into a restaurant with 12 people, and a restaurant tell you that at that moment they cannot accommodate 12 people. But we come to a table every Sunday where you're always welcome. And for those in Christ, you are never rejected. There's not a bread in a cup that every Sunday God looks at you and says, well, this week you just didn't, you didn't make the cut. It's a table every week that for those who are in Christ, there's, there's no rejection for you. You may experience rejection in almost every other area of your life, but not at this table. The bread in the cup is open for you. Now, there may be a time you go to one, ta- one of our six tables and there's not any bread, there's not any cup. You just go to another table. It's going to be there for you. I want to ask our prayer leaders, if you will, go to your spots uh, uh, to pray today. I know, I think uh, Lee Vernice is going to be over here to my right, halfway up that wall. Sam Carr, one of our elders, is here to my right. Sam, if you'll come stand so people can see where you are. Shelly Eaton, uh, or Kim Chapman, is going to be over here to my left. Willie, I see Willie Thomas going to the back. Let us pray for you today. Is there anything we can do for you? If there's something you want to bring in front of this church, Sam's going to be up here to my right. I'll be over here to my left. If there's any way we can pray over you, if there's rejection in your life that is weighing heavy, let's pray over it so it doesn't derail you and turn you into someone you never wanted to become. I mean, the good news of Jesus facing rejection and still staying true to his character and his mission, may it be a word of hope to you today. May it be a word of hope for you that in his rejection, we have life. So let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And God, we thank you today that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And Jesus, may your character, may the strength and the courage inside of you to persevere through it all, will you place that upon us today. 
And as we move the tables, as we take the bread and the cup this morning, may we feel and experience your loving arms wrap around us, welcoming us into your family and into your kingdom forever. Through Christ we pray. Amen.